Welcome to Leadership Conversations, a podcast by the Sustainability Board Report. Join us as we engage in conversations with business and civil society leaders, educators and advisors discussing the role of sustainable leadership in today's world. The Sustainability Board Report is an independent, not-for-profit project. We aim to showcase different dimensions of sustainable business leadership and corporate governance. We publish reports to help individual leaders, organizations and investors to understand the changing landscape of environmental, social and governance factors. Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations by TSBR. I'm Frederick Otto, the founder of the Sustainability Board Report. And as always, I'm here with Helena Gudjutsdottir. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Laura Liswood. Laura is the Secretary General of the Council of Women World Leaders. She has been a senior advisor Goldman Sachs, and she is a worldwide recognized speaker on leadership, diversity, and women empowerment. I had the pleasure of meeting Laura a few months ago, and just over lunch, she managed to increase my understanding of gender equality mechanisms to a completely different level. She has a very unique way of explaining the dynamics of power and leadership. Helena, you met Laura for the first time. What were your impressions? Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. She taught me a lot during this conversation that I think a lot of our listeners will also learn from. I mean, her journey has been really fascinating. She's spoken to some amazing women leaders, and I think you can see the wealth of knowledge when we discuss women in leadership. Now, what gave me clarity is that there's a lot of common attributes between these leaders. They're facing similar challenges. But also we discussed the problems that persist or barriers to entry into these leadership positions. She has some great examples or ways to phrase things that I think really sticks. So for me, I noted down that she mentions the mouse needs to know everything about the elephant, not the other way around. Speaking of women that tend to be in non-dominant groups, having to be more vigilant like the mouse would be in that case. And women historically seem to bring more people to the table because their world is different, therefore bringing in different perspectives. Also, a big learning point is that we all see the progress that has been made in this arena, but effort doesn't necessarily equal the outcome. It needs to be very intentional, needs to become part of everyone's DNA, that this is not a nice to have. It's just how you should behave in a business and in society at large. You have mentioned, obviously, her fascinating career. She was in the police force and... I think that unique experience really gives her a great way of putting it that it needs to become part of our muscle memory as it would be for a first responder. It's just something that you practice and practice and it becomes part of how you do business. And I think overall there are, I mean, so many takeaways. I don't want to give too much away. But Freddie, if there's sort of one thing that you really took away from this before we get into the episode, what would that be? Well, for me, most fascinating was just the network that she has, really. She's been a long-time participant of the World Economic Forum. She has been there, I think, on over 20 consecutive years. She has met a large share of women world leaders, such as prime ministers, presidents, heads of state. And it's really fascinating, the stories that she has to tell. And we'll learn a little bit about how Margaret Thatcher was. But before we give too much away, I really hope everyone enjoys today's episode. Welcome to a new episode of Leadership Conversations. Today we are more than happy to speak to Laura Liswood. 
Laura is Secretary General of the Council of Women World Leaders, which Laura co-founded with President Viktis Finnbogadottir of Iceland, located at the UN Foundation in Washington, D.C. The council is composed of women presidents, prime ministers, and heads of government. From 2001 to 2016, Laura was also named Managing Director, Global Leadership and Diversity for Goldman Sachs, and later became a senior advisor. She continues to speak to audiences globally on diversity, equity, and inclusion. After the events of 9-11, she also became a reserve police officer in the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and retired as a sergeant. Laura is the author of four books, The Loud Dutch, Moving Beyond Diversity, Elephant and Mouse, Women World Leaders, and Serving Them Right. She's a longtime participant of the World Economic Forum and is a steward of the Forum's Education, Gender, and Work Initiative. Laura, I'm so pleased we get the chance to speak again. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's a delight, Frederick. Thank you for inviting me. We had the chance a couple of weeks ago to spend some time together as part of a larger forum, and I was absolutely fascinated by your journey, by your career. And I've given the shortest of overviews just now, but would you mind just summarizing a little bit your leadership journey and the current work that you focus on? Well, yes, I'm happy to do so. I mean, the journey's been one, I would have to say, is not a uh, straight line. It's a kind of a zigzag. I've started out as a lawyer and got an MBA, worked for corporations, and then decided I had one of these questions, Frederick, that I call the in the shower questions, which was, uh, what would it like be like to have a woman president in the United States? And it wasn't such an abrupt question in many ways, because I had read some research that showed that women who were in state legislatures legislated differently than men. They interacted with their constituents differently. They handled the bills differently, et cetera. So I thought, okay, that was interesting. What would happen if we had a woman president in the United States? Now, this was a good 25 years ago. And of course, we still don't have an answer to that question in the United States. But other countries do. And at the time, there were 15 women living who were then or had been president or prime minister of their country. So I decided that perhaps I could meet one or two of them, not knowing why I could meet one or two of them, because I'm not famous or, and I'm not from CNN, you know. But I did uh, go about asking for these interviews. And uh, there were 15, as I said. And interestingly, not one of these world leaders turned me down for an interview. Actually, except, well, Margaret Thatcher said, come back after I'd met all the other 14. So she didn't think I was coming back. But good to her word, I'd met the 14, so I did meet Margaret Thatcher. So that's what got me really thinking very deeply about the issue of women and women's leadership, because these women were all saying things like, They were over-scrutinized. The tolerance for mistakes for them was less than tolerance for mistakes for men. Press looked at their dress and their hairstyles, and they had to prove themselves over and over again. I just kept hearing the same thing from all of them. And so, actually, I asked them if they wanted to meet each other. They said yes. And we ended up creating a council of these women world leaders. And we still have that council. I am the secretary general of it. President Vigdis was the founder, along with President Mary Robinson of Ireland and myself. And now the council is composed of 86 women presidents and prime ministers. So 
if any woman out there is listening and she becomes freely elected in her country to be president or prime minister, we will invite her to join the council. After about three months, we want to make sure they stick. Uh, so, but that's how that's what got me into this really in-depth looking, Frederick, at women's leadership. And considering all of the unique insights, particularly you have around powerful women, where do you think we stand in terms of progress? You said you had these first thoughts about a women president in the US some 25 years ago. Now, 25 years on, there's still no American female president, like you say, but surely the council has been growing over the years. So where do we stand in general around women leadership, perhaps on a government stage, but also from a business perspective? Well, you know, it's sort of good news, not so good news. We have made some progress, obviously. There are women, you know, who are, take on positions of presidents and prime ministers, you know, seemingly more of them, although at any one moment in time, there, you know, there isn't a huge number of them if you compare the number of men leaders out there. The women are progressing in corporations and business sector. Nevertheless, when we look, for example, at the Fortune 500, there are about 8% women in the Fortune 500. Now, if you think about that, that's about as slow a progress as you can get because those numbers, you know, they've risen maybe by 1% a year. Sure, women are into the military academies now. When you look at business, you see that in the financial services industry or other industries, the number of analysts or associates or consultants coming in, you know, usually often 40 to 50% women. But the problem is, Frederick, that after these 25 years, it's less of an intake problem, but very much an upgrade problem. You know, getting women at those higher levels of power, that seems to be the sticking point. And on that, as you know, what we do here is assessing the board competences in terms of environmental and social governance, or more particularly, we are assessing how engaged directors of corporate board of directors are around this topic. And I've shared some research with you, and I wanted to reiterate on that, 60%, and we'll drill down a little deeper, but the headline is that women seem to be roughly 60% more engaged on sustainability topics, and that is strategy implementation, climate change oversight, etc., than their male peers. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a variety of you know reasons that are creating this uh, preference, if you will, that women have. I mean, we've certainly seen some board research that when a board gets to critical mass within its board, that men have a tendency to look at short-term impacts. Women have a tendency to look at long-term impacts. Men have a tendency to look at shareholder impacts. Women have a tendency to look at stakeholder impacts, which includes environments, employees, and communities. And I think for a lot of women, um, there's several things going on. Women are often dramatically more affected in some ways by things like climate change. Uh, we know this. We see this from the, some of the research that shows what happens during disasters. Often women and children are far more likely to be victims of that kind of thing. Women have a tendency to be, you know, what I call hypervigilant. They're a member of the non-dominant group, and the non-dominant groups have a tendency 
to be much more aware of their circumstances and their surroundings than the dominant group does. And that's the title of my book, The Elephant and the Mouse. What does the elephant need to know about the mouse? Not much. What does the mouse need to know about the elephant? Everything. And so you find that women are more hypervigilant. When I talk sometimes about female intuition, and I just say, no, that's just hypervigilance of the non-dominant group. They have to be aware of their surroundings completely. And also there's some research that women have a different risk profile than men do. You see this from hedge fund research, for example, that women have less of a profile of absorbing risk than men do. Probably because women see distinctly what happens when things go wrong. And so things like climate and sustainability, you know, we know things are going wrong. And women know that this is going to potentially create an increased risk for themselves and their families, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of dynamics that are going on here, but uh, I think that's probably why you're seeing that, you know, overweighting by women of this interest in sustainability and all of that, which goes within sustainability. And you see that on boards. There's been some interest in research, for example, that in a downturn, often women board members don't want to as hastily lay off employees. They want to keep the employees employed longer than men do, which is an interesting phenomenon because that may in fact dampen the profitability of an organization. And so some people then hypothesize, well, see, you put women on a board and it dampens the profitability. And some research says, no, you put women on the board, it enhances profitability. So, you know, it's an interesting sort of argument, but there are certain things that women are far more sensitive and aware of than men, you know, which isn't to say that men are bad people. It's just that they live and exist in a different world. Understood. And since we are talking about these behavioral differences, I want to ask you as the Secretary General of the Council for Women World Leaders, where you have met and engaged with so many women prime ministers and presidents and, and heads of states, as we have learned, what are your observations in terms of what they all have in common that might be different to what you have just shared with us in terms of the board perspective, or perhaps what makes them better leaders than men? Mm. Or is that fair to say? Or uh, how does a, a women world leader distinguish herself from a man? Yeah, I am never of the belief, nor do I articulate the belief, that women are, quote, better leaders than men. They may emphasize different traits and different skill sets. I actually have a belief that the best leaders are the leaders that kind of, what I call, have the most tools in their toolbox. So dominant style leadership is often articulated as being much more command and control, much more top-down, often authoritative, that kind of thing, direct uh, speaking styles, et cetera. And you know, non-dominant styles are often seen as being more collaborative, more empathetic. But that isn't to say that men can't have those traits or women can't have the other traits that men have. And again, my perspective, the best leaders know what traits to use based on the situation. You know, so if you're trying to do a strategic analysis of something, you want to make sure that everyone gets heard. You want to make sure that everyone is included. That's the purpose of diversity, incidentally, differing perspectives. So you want to make sure everyone gets heard. You want to make sure everyone feels included 
and respected and valued, et cetera. But, you know, I'll tell you, Frederick, if the building is burning, I don't want someone saying, you know, I'm thinking we might go through door A, but let's talk about it. And maybe we could go through door B, but, you know, I'm not so sure. And we could think about door C also. No, you want someone to say, go through door A now. You don't want this sort of collaborative kind of discussion. You wanted command and control kind of discussion at that point. So I'm, I'm never one to say that. I will say often that women bring different people to the table than men have historically brought because their world is different. They interact with different people. So they're more likely to come up. They have been a teacher before they went into political life. They may have far more connections and networks amongst teachers. If a person's come up as a lawyer, they're going to have contacts within the legal world. So often I've seen that women do bring different people to the table. That's for sure. I also, of course, say that women do what I call creating the power of the mirror, knowing what it is you can be by who it is you see. And that, I think, is very good for younger people, both young women and young men, to see that women are just as entitled to lead as men are. But I'll tell you, women are as entitled to be as mediocre as men are. Um, And some of them are. But by and large, if you've already gone through all of that kind of over-scrutiny, all of that kind of prove-it-again bias, all of that kind of tightrope bias, all of the kind of things, leniency bias, all of the kind of things that they've had to go through, by the time they get into those positions of power, they pretty well know what they're doing. They pretty well know how to to understand the dynamics of what's going on. Part of the problem, however, is often it's what some have called the crumbling cliff theory of leadership, which is just when the cliff is about to crumble, just when the country or company is about to go into crisis mode, then people say, oh, let's try a woman now. Let's bring a woman in now. And there is some research shows that women will have a tendency to be confronted with more crises than men will, and therefore challenging them more to be successful, and that kind of over-scrutiny that comes with that. Thanks for the answer, Laura. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm really interested now how we can potentially draw a few parallels from first responders. And I find it absolutely fascinating that you've decided to sign up for the police force after the events of 9-11, after, um, I guess it is fair to say, a very successful career. That is probably an unusual move. What are the parallels of leadership and potentially crisis management we can draw from the police force first responders with powerful leadership narratives and business leadership? Well, I think there's very interesting parallels, and I was always fascinated to see the parallels because I was actually doing work in the corporate world at the same time. I was being a police officer, so I could see both going on. But first and foremost, to be a first responder, they really require that you practice, that you practice and practice and practice so that when emergencies do come up, you kind of have the, quote, muscle memory to deal with these emergencies. And so one of the things that I think good leaders need to do is practice sort of thinking about practicing how they would deal with crises. I once asked a a three-star general as to, you know, how they developed leaders in the military. And they started very 
very young, and then they move them up the ranks. And he said, we make them practice. We make them practice, and then we give them feedback on how they did, and then we make them practice again, and we give them more feedback, then we give them a little more responsibility, and we give them more feedback, et cetera. So, you know, there's literally the practice part of it. And there's also interesting, I mean, when um, I went into the police academy, they said to us, your most dangerous weapon was not your service weapon, in our case, a Glock, semi-automatic. Your most dangerous weapon was not your service weapon. Your most dangerous weapon were your unconscious words. If you act, react, speak unconsciously, it was guaranteed you would get yourself into, and others into trouble. It was act, react, think, behave, speak consciously in your workplace. And I think that's the case for any organization, any leader. They must be very conscious of how they act and how they react, particularly in diverse organizations where they may or may not have lived the life of someone who's diverse from them. And that would be that very, very important. And then I thought very much another thing that was essential in the police force was active intervention, active intervention. It meant actively intervened if you saw your colleague, police officer, doing something that perhaps they shouldn't be doing. Now, tragically, that doesn't always happen, but it really is a tenant of policing, which is active bystander intervention. And I think that that's the case in organizations. Again, as organizations get more and more diverse, it becomes more imperative that leadership actively intervene when they see that the playing field is not level, when they see that the organization, through their research and their surveying, et cetera, is not a meritocracy for everyone. Yeah. They have to actively intervene when they see let's just say someone getting constantly interrupted. Women get interrupted three times more than men do. You know, when they see that someone is not speaking, they have to actively intervene. When they see things that are potentially discriminatory, it is their responsibility as leaders. And the more diverse you get, the more you have to actively intervene. Interesting. And I remember you were talking about this in your book, The Loudest Duck as well, which I have read and thoroughly enjoyed. Now, talking about better integration of people, more diversity in the workplace, which the book is all about, what are the trends that you observe at the moment? And are we becoming more diverse in a meaningful context? Well, there's some interesting trends, some going sort of in the right direction and some, we might say, need a mid-course correction. The right direction, I think, is, is that there has been a far more of an awareness of the lived experiences of people who are not in the dominant group, whether perhaps be Black people in the U.S. or in other non-dominant groups in other countries that are getting treated in a different way. So there's a lot more awareness of that. I think there's a lot more understanding by many that diversity is essential because your clients want it, because it's the right thing to do, because you're trying to get cognitive diversity with the differing ways people think about things. So I think there's far more of a business case there. You know, also because I am a lawyer, I think there are some legal trends that are sharpening around these issues. That's sort of the good news, if you will. I think some of the challenges that remain, however, is what the subtitle of my book, The Elephant and the Mouse is, which is the illusion of inclusion. And what does that mean? 
that means that effort is not equaling outcome and is intent is not equaling impact. And so what happens is, and this, that phrase is Cheryl Kaiser's phrase, illusion of inclusion from the University of Washington, where she says that what happens with organizations who develop all of these programs, you know, they have all these diversity programs, they do trainings, they have employee resource groups, they bring in diversity speakers, they give money to diverse organizations, they have mentor programs, et cetera, et cetera. They have all of these programs. And people then jump to the conclusion that we must be a fair organization because we have all these programs. So it's a sort of a tautology of thinking. You know, all these programs must mean we're fair, irrespective of the fact that the research may point when there are organizations that, that they are not, that people are not experiencing the organization in a fair way. But people say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, we're doing all these programs. We've got to be doing this. But the problem is because effort is not always equaling outcome, we're starting to see, Frederick, what is in sort of the diversity world called diversity fatigue. Then people are going, we've just been doing this and doing this. And you're seeing some dominant group members saying, why are we doing this? It's just, you know, we're, now we're unfair to the dominant group, which isn't true, but why are we doing all of this? Why are we putting so much attention to this? And so you're hearing these kinds of things. And it takes, talk about leadership, it takes strong leaders to withstand that. To, you know, it'd just be like saying, let's just say you were an airline. I used to work for the airline. And your number one priority in an airline as a leader and everyone within the organization, your number one priority is safety. It's not good for business if an airplane falls out of the sky. It is just not. And it's not good for humanity. So safety is number one. Above anything else that you do, an airplane has to be safe. Okay. Well, would you ever allow someone to say, you know, we're just doing too much around safety. You know, all this training, all this accountability, all this transparency, making everyone have to be responsible for, you know, we're just doing too much. We just got to stop doing so much. No one, no leader would allow that. In fact, that person wouldn't be working long for that company, right? So if we think of it in those terms, then we begin to say, well, wait a minute. Or if you're a financial services company and you have to do compliance, right? Every financial service industry has huge compliance responsibilities. You got to be trained and you got to be evaluated and you've got to be held accountable. You would never, you'd never allow employees to say, well, you know, we're just doing too much compliance. Let's just ease up on this compliance stuff. You would never allow that to happen. So I'm saying this to leaders that if they are committed to diversity and inclusion, that's the kind of stance they need to take. Fantastic example, Laura. And be before we get to the end of the podcast, I want to ask you one more thing, and I can just imagine a lot of listeners might just be thinking, that's been a great 25 minutes, but I really want to know what is her favorite story of those 15 interviews with the world women leaders. So any anecdote or favorite moment that you can disclose or share, and I'm sure you have some confidentiality agreements, but anything that stuck with you? Yeah, well, I certainly do have confidentiality with them. Margaret Thatcher was interesting. I'll give you that. You know, I'm an experiential learner, which means I have to do stuff to learn. And so I was eternally grateful. I'd gotten to uh, 14 other prime ministers before I met Margaret Thatcher. Well, so originally I had asked a woman named Glenda Jackson, 
who, if you're from the Great Britain, you know who Glenda Jackson is, famous actress, now a member of the Liberal Party and Labor Party. And so I asked her to narrate my documentary of these women leaders. So I met her, I had a cameraman, I put the microphone in front of her and I said, well, say something about women's leadership. She says, well, the first thing is, I'm bitterly disappointed that the first woman prime minister of Great Britain was Margaret Thatcher, who has single-handedly destroyed the fabric of British society. <laughs> it's like, pause. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about women's leadership? So Glenda Jackson did not narrate my film. A woman named Judy Woodruff from the United States narrated it. But anyway, Margaret Thatcher was an interesting person. I could not get her to disaggregate on gender. All 14 others, I could get them to talk about gender. I could not get her to talk about gender. She just wouldn't recognize that. She was the only one who required I bring a makeup person. And someone said, for you or for her, it was for her. Uh, she was very, very, very conscious of her image as she drove the cameraman mad with all the different camera angles that she wanted to see. But, you know, she did exhibit something that all of them exhibited, which was, and what I think great leaders, whether you agreed with their policies or not, leaders have, which is curiosity. Every one of the leaders was curious as to what the others had said. And so my interviews just kept getting longer and longer until I was Margaret Thatcher. I was scheduled a half an hour. I was with her for almost three hours because she wanted to know what the others had said in response to the answers. Because I, in fact, am the only one who met them all and they hadn't met each other. So they were actually, it was, it was kind of funny because a prime minister would complain about something and I'd say, oh gosh, prime minister, don't worry. Prime Minister so-and-so had the exact same problem. And it seemed to relieve them a bit of that. So, you know, it was an interesting journey to meet them. They're both just like you and me. And they're also uh, extraordinary people who do what I say, which take, takes courage to lead anyone, male or female, takes courage to lead, which is standing in front of the crowd, not being in the crowd. That takes courage. Excellent. Laura, before we wrap, we always have two questions that we're asking all of our guests. These are always the same, and that tends to be our favorite part of the podcast, although today was an uh, absolutely fascinating conversation throughout, of course. And we might have already answered the question, but I'll ask you anyways. What is your favorite story of a particular leader or organization that had a big impact on yourself or society at large? Well, I've had many people and organizations impact me, but let me share a little story that really told me why I was doing this work. I mentioned that the council got created and we ended up housing the council initially at the Kennedy School of Government and to put our secretariat there first. Dean Joe Nye invited us to put the secretariat at the Kennedy School. So I would every day walk to my office, but I would have to walk through the John F. Kennedy Park. And there's a large engraved slab of granite that has a quote from John F. Kennedy on it. And I would read it every day. And it was, when at some future date, the high court of history sits in judgment on each one of us, our success or failure in whatever office we hold will be measured by the answers to four questions. Were we truly men of courage? Were we truly men of dedication? Were we truly men of integrity? Were we truly men of judgment? And I'd read it every day. And I think to myself, such good questions to ask men. 
But of course, they're good questions to ask women too. But in fact, we have seen that, you know, the, the archetype of leadership is male. And that's an unfortunate thing because society loses a great deal of talent and a great deal of innovation and creativity and uh, initiative when it doesn't include everyone in the potential pool for leaders. So I always, I always remember that story, just going by that quote every day, going, such good questions to ask men. <laughs> Absolutely. And in that spirit, can you give our listeners one piece of advice that they can make part of their leadership toolkit and start applying basically from today to set them up for more positive societal impact? Well, it's going to be a bit of a long answer, but I think it's appropriate. It comes from Howard Gardner's book, Leading Minds. And Howard Gardner said, found as he researched across cultures, across nationalities, across leadership types, across industries, he found four traits of great leaders. So the first trait was that they had a true north, which is having that sense of moral compass. The second, he said, was that they were willing to challenge authority, which is, takes courage. Third, he said, they literally had the skill sets to communicate their ideas. And to communicate ideas, you have to either be able to verbally communicate them or in writing communicate them, but you have to be able to communicate. And that, incidentally, is where I say practice comes in. And then fourth, which is, I think, a very important one, he said great leaders had traveled. Now, he did not mean travel to Zambia, interesting as that would be. He meant traveled outside of your world view, which, incidentally, is very difficult for any of us to do. That because the way the world works for us is not necessarily the way the world works for others. And it's imperative for leaders to understand how the world works for others, particularly in the organizations they're leading. So I'll leave that. So it's kind of four things, if you will, that I think they're all very good. No, absolutely. I like them as well. Thanks so much for sharing these. Great. Laura, Thanks so much for coming on. Before we go, my very last question, what are the projects Laura Liswood is focusing on for the next couple of years or anything in the pipeline? Well, you know, I've got the new book out, so that seems to be generating some interest and opportunity. I actually sit on a board that looks at how police officers treat minorities within the community that they're in and use of force issues. So I'm very keen on that. I also think I want to travel and maybe travel to Zambia. This might be very interesting. I've done a lot of traveling in my life, but now I'm wanting to travel for a different reason, to appreciate different cultures. And I can't say I'm, I'm working on another book, Frederick, because they come along when they come along. I'm taking the opportunity to just really find out and figure out, because my passion is women's leadership. My passion is diversity and inclusion you know, how it is that we can accomplish all the things we say we want to accomplish. Yes, I'm sure we will hear much more from you as well. And you have been uh, asking these questions for so many years and I think given a lot of people a lot of guidance. The Elephant and the Mouse is available to buy now, your latest book. Laura, again, thanks so much for coming on today. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Conversations. To follow our work and learn more about our reports, please check out our website, boardreport.org, and sign up to our newsletter. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter 
Details can be found in the podcast description. Thank you.